Part One, Book One, Chapter Seven, of *The Man Who Laughs* by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emily Burke at the University of Southern California. *The Man Who Laughs* by Victor Hugo, Part One, Book One, Chapter Seven. THE NORTH POINT OF PORTLAND He ran until he was breathless, at random, desperate, over the plain, into the snow, into space. His flight warmed him, he needed it. Without the run and the fright he had died. When his breath failed him he stopped, but he dared not look back. He fancied that the birds would pursue him, that the dead man had undone his chain, and was perhaps hurrying behind him and no doubt the gibbet itself was descending the hill, running after the dead man. He feared to see these things if he turned his head. When he had somewhat recovered his breath, he resumed his flight. To account for facts does not belong to childhood. He received impressions which were magnified by terror, but he did not link them together in his mind, nor form any conclusion on them. He was going on, no matter how or where. He ran in agony and difficulty as one in a dream. During the three hours or so since he had been deserted, his onward progress, still vague, had changed its purpose. At first it was a search, now it was a flight. He no longer felt hunger nor cold, he felt fear. One instinct had given place to another. To escape was now his whole thought. To escape from what? From everything. On all sides life seemed to enclose him like a horrible wall. If he could have fled from all things, he would have done so. But children know nothing of that breaking from prison which is called suicide. He was running. He ran on for an indefinite time, but fear dies with lack of breath. All at once, as if seized by a sudden accession of energy and intelligence, he stopped. One would have said he was ashamed of running away. He drew himself up, stamped his foot, and with head erect looked around. There was no longer hill, nor gibbet, nor flights of crows. The fog had resumed possession of the horizon. The child pursued his way. He now no longer ran, but walked. To say that meeting with a corpse had made him a man of him would be to limit the manifold and confused impression which possessed him. There was in his impression much more and much less. The gibbet, a mighty trouble in the rudiment of comprehension, nascent in his mind, still seemed to him an apparition. But a trouble overcome is strength gained, and he felt himself stronger. Had he been of an age to probe self, he would have detected within him a thousand other germs of meditation. But the reflection of children is shapeless, and the utmost they feel is the bitter aftertaste of that which, obscure to them, the man later on calls indignation. Let us add that a child has the faculty of quickly accepting the conclusion of a sensation, the distant fading boundaries which amplify painful subjects escape him. A child is protected by the limit of feebleness against emotions which are too complex. He sees the fact, and little else beside. The difficulty of being satisfied by half-ideas does not exist for him. It is not until later that experience comes, with its belief, to conduct the lawsuit of life. Then he confronts group of facts which have crossed his path, the understanding, cultivated and enlarged, 
draws comparisons. The memories of youth reappear under the passions, like the traces of a palimpsest under the erasure. These memories form the bases of logic, and that which was a vision in the child's brain becomes a syllogism in the man's. Experience is, however, various, and turns to good or evil according to natural disposition, and with the good it ripens, and with the bad it rots. The child had run quite a quarter of a league, and walked another quarter, when suddenly he felt the craving of hunger. A thought which altogether eclipsed the hideous apparition on the hill occurred to him forcibly, that he must eat. Happily, there is in a man a brute which serves to lead him back to reality. But what to eat? Where to eat? How to eat? He felt his pockets mechanically, well knowing that they were empty. Then he quickened his steps, without knowing whither he was going. He hastened towards a possible shelter. This faith in an inn is one of the convictions enrooted by God in man. To believe in a shelter is to believe in God. However, in that plain of snow there was nothing like a roof. The child went on, and the waste continued bare as far as the eye could see. There had never been a human habitation on the tableland. It was at the foot of the cliff, in holes on the rocks, that, lacking wood to build themselves huts, had dwelt long ago the aboriginal inhabitants, who had slings for arms, dried cow dung for firing, and a god, the idol Hale, standing in a glade at Dorchester, for the trade of fishing of that false grey coral which the Gauls call Plin, and the Greeks Esiris Plocamos. The child found his way as best he could. Destiny is made up of crossroads. An option of path is dangerous. This little being had an early choice of doubtful chances. He continued to advance, but although the muscles of his thighs seemed to be of steel, he began to tire. There were no tracks in the plain, or if there were any, the snow had obliterated them. Instinctively he inclined eastwards. Sharp stones had wounded his heels. Had it been daylight, pink stains made by his blood might have been seen in the footprints he left in the snow. He recognized nothing. He was crossing the plain of Portland from south to north, and it is probable that the band with which he had come, to avoid meeting anyone, had crossed it from east to west. They had most likely sailed in some fisherman's or smuggler's boat, from a point on the coast of Oakscombe, such as St. Catherine's Cape or Swancry, to Portland to find the hooker which awaited them. And they must have landed in one of the creeks of Weston, and re-embarked in one of those of Easton. That direction was intersected by the one the child was now following. It was impossible for him to recognize the road. On the plain of Portland there are, here and there, raised strips of land, abruptly ended by the shore and cut perpendicular to the sea. The wandering child reached one of these culminating points and stopped on it, hoping that a larger space might reveal further indications. He tried to see around him. Before him, in place of a horizon, was a vast, livid opacity. He looked at this attentively, and under the fixedness of his glance it became less indistinct. At the base of a distant fold of land towards the east, in the depths of that opaque lividity, a moving and wan sort of precipice, which resembled a cliff of the night, 
crept and floated some vague black rents, some dim shreds of vapor. The pale opacity was fog, the black shreds were smoke. Where there is smoke, there are men. The child turned his steps in that direction. He saw some distance off a descent, and at the foot of the descent, among shapeless conformations of rock, blurred by the mist, what seemed to be either a sandbank or a tongue of land, joined probably to the plains of the horizon the tableland he had just crossed. It was evident he must pass that way. He had, in fact, arrived at the Isthmus of Portland. A diluvian alluvium, which is called Chest Hill. He began to descend the side of the plateau. The descent was difficult and rough. It was, with less of ruggedness, however, the reverse of the ascent he had made on leaving the creek. Every ascent is balanced by a decline. After having clambered up, he crawled down. He leapt from one rock to another at the risk of a sprain, at the risk of falling into the vague depths below. To save himself when he slipped on the rock or on the ice, he caught hold of handfuls of weeds and furs, thick with thorns, and their points ran into his fingers. At times he came on an easier declivity, taking breath as he descended. Then came on the precipice again, and each step necessitated an expedient. In descending precipices, every moment, every movement solves a problem. One must be skillful under pain of death. These problems the child solved with an instinct which would have made him the admiration of apes and mountebanks. The descent was steep and long. Nevertheless, he was coming to the end of it. Little by little, it was drawing nearer to the moment when he should land on the isthmus, of which from time to time he caught a glimpse. At intervals which he, while he bounded or dropped from rock to rock, he pricked up his ears, his head erect, like a listening deer. He was hearkening to a diffused and faint uproar, far away to the left, like the deep note of a clarion. It was a commotion of winds, preceding that fearful north blast which is heard rushing from the pole, like an inroad of trumpets. At the same time the child felt now and then on his brow, on his eyes, on his cheeks, something which was like the palms of cold hands being placed on his face. These were large frozen flakes, sown at first softly in space, then eddying and heralding a snowstorm. The child was covered with them. The snowstorm, which for the past hour had been on the sea, was beginning to gain the land. It was slowly invading the plains. It was entering obliquely by the northwest, the tableland of Portland. End of chapter.